let's, let's dive in here. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we ask that your spirit will be here. Particularly, we're talking about the, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Help us today, Lord, to hear these words and to have hearts that are open to this experience. In Jesus' name, amen. So I want to start where we wrapped up last Sabbath, because really, these messages really do build on one another. And if you didn't hear last Sabbath, it's, it's worth the time to listen just to put you in the flow here. Acts chapter 1, if you want to take the Bible that's in front of you there, I'm using that translation, the English Standard Version. Acts chapter 1, we find these words, verse 1, in the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. Now the understanding here is this is Luke writing, and his first book was the book of Luke, and now Acts is his second book. So he says, in his first book, I dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. Now again, this was a very important issue to them in the day. Jesus presented himself to them alive, literally alive as a human with flesh and blood and bones. And, and one of the things he does in the context of when they're all gathered together, he says, do you have anything to eat? So that they would understand that the Jesus that is alive is still of the same substance and reality as the rest of us humans. Now, he's in glorified flesh. And that is what awaits us. But he is the representative of what we will become in our flesh. Verse 4. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Now what I want you to hear there is Jesus' counsel. Now we all remember very well the Great Commission. Go therefore and make disciples. But sometimes we get the admonition to go before we hear the other part of what Jesus said. And that was, but before you go, wait. Wait for the promise of the Father. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So we jump down to verse 12. Then they, the disciples, returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered... They went up to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. Now listen to verse 14. They've been told to wait. Stay in Jerusalem, wait. Verse 14. All these with one accord 
were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. So there's a little community here. And they've gathered themselves together because God has promised something is going to happen. Jesus has told them something is going to happen. So what do they do while they wait? They gathered themselves together in one accord. They made peace with each other. That was no small feat because they used to love to argue about who was the greatest. And as you see, as the history of the early church unfolds, it's never easy for God's people to be together at peace. So if we struggle with it, don't feel bad. That's normal. But we're expected to overcome it. We're expected to see beyond the dividers to the greater unity that we have in Christ. And we're supposed to fight our way there. So they were together in one accord. And what were they doing? Well, maybe this is the key to how we overcome a lot of these things that divide us. They were devoting themselves to prayer. I mentioned last week that that the things that we often devote ourselves to, I'm not sure the thing that holds us back is our lack of strategy or our lack of diligence or our lack of desire. I think we have those. I think we demonstrate those. But sometimes I think we're a little better at getting together, getting together to talk business than we are at getting together to pray. And I, I put myself in that category. I'm not that guy. I'm not that hyper-spiritual guy who, who always says, let's pray, let's pray. Fortunately, the Lord has appointed people in my family who have those skills. So what were they doing while they waited? If you bring in a piece from, from the book of Luke, it says that they were continually in the temple worshiping God. So I want to suggest to you what they were doing while they waited. Jesus said, go back and wait. I want to suggest what they were doing. There was worship. There was unity. And there was prayer. And as I said to you last week, I'll say it again. Could anything be more simple yet more impossible. Probably the simplest thing I could say that we as a community need to do is we need to worship, we need to be united with each other, and we need to spend time in prayer. And I don't think there's anybody that could argue with me. But I know me. And you know you. And I know my schedule, and I know my life, and I know my tendencies. And maintaining a worshipful spirit in my heart and unity with my brothers and sisters, and intentionally setting aside time for prayer doesn't always align with the priorities I seem to have set. So what happened to them? Let's just leave us for a minute. What happened to them? Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. When the day of Pentecost arrived... They were all together in one place. So apparently this gathering together thing was not unusual for them. 
And I pray that as we go forward, we will more and more gather in this place with more and more of our brothers and sisters. They were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others mocking said, They are filled with new wine. Now, I want to pause a second here and just note a couple things in the saying here. You may have imagined this in your mind, that the Holy Spirit fell upon the eleven. And that they began to speak in tongues and were speaking these other people's languages. But I want to suggest to you that your thinking is too narrow. Because the text specifically says the divided tongues of fire appeared and rested on each one of them. Not just the eleven. And who all was in this room? Well, if you remember, they were all together in one place. And if you'll remember from the previous words, all of them meant the eleven, yes, but also the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. Apparently, the falling of the Holy Spirit is not gender determinative. It seems that day the Spirit fell on the women and the men. And there is no distinction in the language of what we read here as to who exactly was speaking. But I do know this. The number of languages implied is more than 11. So if in fact the Holy Spirit was moving in the hearts of everyone in that room and they were speaking, it's very likely some of this proclamation was coming from the women as well as from the men. But others mocking said they are filled with new wine. So here's the thing about the falling of the Holy Spirit. 
Nobody in the room that morning was unsure whether or not something had happened. Right? If you were in that room that morning, you're like, yeah, I don't know. I don't think I heard the rushing wind. I, I didn't. I don't think I saw the fire. No, they were clear something had happened. And here's the other thing. Nobody else around them was unclear as to whether or not something had happened either. It said they heard the noise and they came. Now, some of them were not sure exactly what had happened, and some were suggesting that perhaps they were drunk. But nobody was questioning whether or not something had happened. Nobody in the upper room was unsure whether or not they had received the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. So here's my question. Why are we so often unsure? Let's go on. Verse 14. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. Now I find that kind of an amusing little passage there, and I don't want to read too much into this, but uh, third hour of the day meaning roughly nine o'clock in the morning. The assumption of the middle of the day is noon, sunrise roughly 6 a.m., sunset. I mean, these are just general sense of, of timekeeping. Third hour of the day would be roughly nine o'clock. I find it amusing that the text doesn't say, these men aren't drunk, they never drink. Doesn't say that, does it? It says, these men aren't drunk, it's too early for that. All right, don't read too much into the Bible, but that is what it says, right? But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. And your young men shall see visions. And your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and my female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapors of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. couple points here. Peter is quoting this Old Testament prophecy from the prophet Joel. And he's saying things that are so true they're even truer than he knows because there are things that are going to come to pass and be revealed and realities he's going to learn that he doesn't even know yet. Yet he's already said it here. It says, in the last days, I will pour out my spirit on a few select individuals. Is that what it says? No, it says all flesh. 
and your sons and daughters shall prophesy. Now, now all flesh, I don't know what that term means to you, but what it suggests to me is that the receiving of the power of the Holy Spirit is not race determined. That in fact, it's God's purpose to pour out His Spirit not just on the Jews, or not just on one certain group, but on all flesh, that we all have access to this promise of the Father. And not only that, this passage is particularly gender inclusive. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. And it's also age inclusive. Your young men shall see visions and your old men shall dream dreams. There's actually a fascinating thing to that that, that, that I find very interesting that aligns with the, uh, the ministry of Ellen White. In her early life, she saw lots of visions. In her later life, she dreamed lots of dreams. It's kind of cool. Maybe that's something that God does. I don't know. I guess an older person could see a vision, but, but uh, for whatever reason, that was the trajectory of her own story. On my male and female servants. And then he goes on to mention other signs. I'll show wonders in the heavens, signs on the earth, blood and fire and vapors of smoke. We're... We're a people constantly looking around for signs in the world. And I'm not going to say that's not a reality. I'm not going to say you can't do that. I'm not going to say that's not real. It's listed in here as well. But it's only one thing. There's another sign that goes with it that's supposed to be of equal power and importance. And that is the reality of the Holy Spirit in the life of God's people. The presence of the Spirit of God in God's people is as much a sign of God working as anything in the world. Why don't we fixate a little more on that and a little less on everything out there? He makes another comment here. He says, and in the last days it shall be. And Peter is standing up and saying, it is now. There's a context in which it would help us sometimes when we're reading the New Testament to understand that this phrase, last days, does not narrowly apply to just before the Lord comes, but rather can be understood in certain contexts as inclusive of all the days since Jesus accomplished his work on Calvary. All the days before are the former days. All the days after are the latter days because that point is the separating point of all reality. So when you hear last days, don't immediately go to some apocalyptic notion. This is reality that applies to all the days after Jesus. Now that's different from the concept of the time of the end, which is a literal time as we have understood it historically taking place after the fulfillment of the time prophecies. But that's not where we're going today. One other point here. The outpouring of the Holy Spirit leads to the proclamation of Jesus. And as you'll see in a second, it also leads to convicted belief. 
Acts, Acts 2, verse 22. This is Peter still talking. He says, these men are not drunk, but this is what the prophet Joel talked about. And then he goes on. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with the mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the def- according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Then Peter goes on. Brothers, I I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted to the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. So this is Peter's sermon, and it comes with great power. And he starts seeing things in Old Testament scripture that he probably never saw before. Because suddenly these words are being brought to him in the context of the leading of the Holy Spirit. And in the prophet Joel, he sees the reality of what's happening. And in the Psalms, he sees that that this very strange comment of David was not about himself, it was about the one who was to come. And then he sees in another Psalm a passage speaking about how the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. And all of it is starting to come together now and starting to make sense to him. He says it's Jesus who didn't see corruption. He was raised. And the Spirit has come now. And that's what's happening. And that's what you're seeing. So one of the things that happens when the Holy Spirit comes upon you in power is you begin to testify about Jesus. And you begin to see things in God's Word in a new way. And this testimony becomes less an argument and more a convicted statement of reality. And the people that hear you are less convinced 
and more convicted. You know the difference between those words, right? Convinced is primarily a mental experience. And I'm not saying there isn't a place for it. And I'm not saying it's not appropriate for us to spend time teaching and convincing of certain things. But I do want to say this. Coming to Jesus is a step of faith. And a step of faith is better taken from conviction than it is from a long list of me attempting to convince you to do it. You see, the belief that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, is not a provable statement. Now, I can give you evidence. I can talk about it for a long time. But if all you are is convinced, then all it takes is somebody to come along with a better argument than me and convince you the other way, right? This is why belief is, at its core, a step of faith. And that step of faith comes with the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Now, that's a pretty good little sermon that Peter gives there. It's not bad. Pretty good. Tapped into lots of stuff. Kind of grab bag in some ways. A little bit off the cuff. But watch what power it had. Acts 2, verse 37. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? They show up. There's a noise. What in the world's going on over here? This is crazy. Wow, those guys are speaking our own language. What are they saying? And they listen. And the end result isn't, wow, this was a weird day. The end result was they were cut to the heart. This is what happens when we present the gospel in the power of the Holy Spirit. When we present the gospel in the power of our own flesh, we might convince a mind or two. But when the gospel is presented in the power of the Holy Spirit, the hearers are cut to the heart. And they say, brothers, what should we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. It's supposed to go together. For the promise is for you. Isn't that a beautiful statement? The promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. What a fabulous story. But I want to go back here to these words. 
The promise is for you. What promise? Well, we go all the way back to John. We read in John. He said, I'm going to my Father. And if I go, then the Father will send the one who stands beside, the Comforter, the Counselor, the Paraclete, the one who will always be with you. This is the promise of the Father. He promises that when Jesus goes, He will send the Spirit, and through the Spirit, Jesus will be able to be with every one of us as though we are the only one. Our relationship with Him is as close as if we are the only one in communication. How can that be? The Holy Spirit. That's how it works. Every one of us. And the promise, you might think, well, the promise was for them, but there's too many believers now and it's a little bit diluted. That's not how it works. The promise is for you and for your children. And I love this line in particular. And for all who are far off. Because you know what? Here's the deal. Geographically, And chronologically, I could not be more far off from the upper room in Jerusalem. And let's just go back to this time. Even in terms of mentality and attitude, what were my ancestors doing when the apostles were saying these words? Well, they were a bunch of barbarians fighting the Romans in Northern Europe. Could I have been any more far off? Yet the grace of God is to all who believe. And the promise is not just to the people in the room. The promise is to anyone who will believe, no matter how far off they are. The promise is for you. The promise of the Holy Spirit. The promise of new life in Christ. The promise of eternal life. It's for you. The promise is for you. The calling is for you. Go, therefore, and make disciples. That's for you, too. The purpose is for you. In the words, and I am with you always to the very end of the age. Those words are for you. I'm going to invite the band to come back up here. So we're going to sing a song in a minute. But while they're doing that, I have a question for you. Have you ever felt the fire of the presence of Jesus in your life? Have you ever spoken a more powerful testimony about Jesus than you could have ever come up with on your own? Has, has, have you ever had a moment where you're talking to someone and, and suddenly you hear your mouth and you're like, oh, I don't know where that's coming from. Now maybe you've had that moment in a, in a, in a despairing way. Hopefully that's not what we're talking about. 
Have you ever felt emotion well up in you at a time when you thought, what is this about? These things are part of the promise. The promise of the Holy Spirit in you that will make you effective in giving testimony about Jesus. This is the promise, and the promise is for you. Have you ever received the Holy Spirit? Did you even know you were supposed to have? We're actually going to spend time on that next Sabbath. This issue that you can have a completely valid and, and right theological construct in your brain and not have the power of the Holy Spirit in your life. It's not automatic. Did you know you're supposed to receive the Holy Spirit when you believe? And when you do, you're not unsure. Ah, uh, maybe. I don't know. No, it's not it. They were sure. And not only are you not unsure, other people aren't unsure either. Wow, the Spirit is strong in that person. You've seen it, right? And this coming of the Holy Spirit results in a testimony about Jesus. But it's a testimony that takes place in the way that God made you to testify. Some people God made to testify with their mouth. Some people God made to testify in actually useful and powerful ways. Because we can only do so much with talk, right? And here's the thing about the Holy Spirit in your life. It comes with fruits. And it comes with gifts. We're going to spend time on all of this. But Jesus said to them, wait in Jerusalem for the promise. And what they were to do while they waited for the promise was to worship, to be in unity, and to pray. Now, I believe we're building up to something important. But it will only be what it can be if we are willing to do the work of waiting. Worship, unity, prayer. To anybody far off, this promise is for you. Do you want this gift? Have you received the Holy Spirit?